Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Dr. Mark Brackett is a professor in the Yale Child Study Center and founding director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. He has published over 125 scholarly articles on the role of emotions and emotional intelligence in learning, decision-making, creativity, relationships, health, and performance. Mark is the lead developer of RULER, an evidence-based approach to social and emotional learning that's been adopted by over 2,000 schools, and we'll talk a bit about this today. And he is the co-founder of OG Life Lab, which is a digital emotional intelligence learning system for businesses. And he's the author of a fantastic book called Permission to Feel, Unlocking the Power of Emotions to Help Our Kids, Ourselves, and Our Society Thrive. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. So I'm going to start with my first question here, which is a question that is peppered throughout your book. You ask the readers this question multiple times. Ready for it? I'm anticipating it. (laughs) How do you feel right now? Um, The word I'm going to say is overwhelmed. I just feel like I feel like society is overwhelming. I feel like my work is overwhelming. Um, Yeah, I just feel overwhelmed. But okay. I'm, I'm giving myself the permission to feel it. <laughs> okay. I can relate to that feeling. I've been feeling that a lot lately as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's your word too, or do you have other words? At the moment, I'm feeling my a little fluttery feeling in my heart. I think I'm a little nervous because I had to read your bio, you know, I'm doing <sighs> this interview. So I'm a little neurotic Jewish guy from Jersey, so you'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> Great. Well, and there's a reason that, that you ask that question a lot, which is that checking in on how you're feeling, asking how you're feeling, being asked how you're feeling is a big part of, of the skill set that we'll be talking about today. Let's um, dive in and talk about, let's start with the problem that underlies why you're doing this work. And I think a lot of adults and children uh, struggle to understand their own emotions and express them in a healthy way. What's going on there and why why is this a problem? Well, I think it's a problem because we have no formal ways of teaching it. You know, we, we rely on luck, you know, that someone gets an emotion education. And we wouldn't rely on luck, right, to cultivate a Nobel laureate in poetry, right? We, we recognize that you have to write and write and write and get feedback and write and write and get feedback. But we don't do that for children's and adults' inner lives. And so, you know, my mission in life is to make sure that everyone gets an emotion education. Yeah. And I'm curious where, just at the cultural level, I mean, what do you think why is that? Why is that not part of our education? Why is that not something that is sort of, you know, embedded in our regular, maybe it is a little bit more now, I think, thanks to people like you. Yeah, it is. But it's not systemic. You know, it's, it's add on, 
you know, it's not a real part of a child's education, in my opinion, yet. We're working on it, but, you know, it's still, you know, there's no um, assistant superintendent of social and emotional learning in most districts. And so there should be, because it's an integral part of education, just like there's an assistant superintendent of instruction, and we need one to deal with the other side of the report card. Do you, and I know that a lot of your work is in schools and in the education system. Do you, you do feel like this is maybe starting to change? Are you it seeing is. signs of that? Yeah. It definitely is. You know, I think sadly, you know, going through a pandemic the last year has made people ever more aware of the fact that people's emotions, you know, they're running high and without strategies to support healthy emotion regulation, nobody's functioning well. I can't tell you how many phone calls and how many webinars I've done on emotion regulation in the last year. You know, teachers having panic attacks on their way to school, kids, you know, having, you know, just meltdowns in their homes with remote learning, uh, parents, you know, freaking out like I'm a mom, I'm a teacher, I'm a custodian, I'm the cafeteria worker, I'm everything. And so um, I think people are beginning to realize more than ever before that how we feel matters and what we do with our feelings matters a great deal. Yeah. I'm going to circle back later at the end of the interview and ask you more about kids in the pandemic, because I think that is on everyone's mind. Sure. Um, I'm, I, I just reflecting on this myself, I, I do think I've seen some changes too in parenting and how parenting has evolved over the years and some of the messages kids got when I was a kid, I just, I don't see it a lot, at least in my circle. And so that gives me some hope. And I think the work that you and others are doing is really important in that you're, you're helping people know, parents and teachers know what to do to teach this. That's the goal. And, and honestly, it's the adults first anyway, because so much of the field of social and emotional learning is about an educator or a school buying something that then the teacher delivers or does with kids. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it. You know, you wouldn't ask me to teach physics, you know, it would be like really weird. (laughs) And so, um, you know, the educators who are delivering this content have to know it. And the difference between social and emotional learning content and other academic content is that not everybody has to be an expert in every academic field, but everybody who works with kids has to be an expert in SEL. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, actually, relatedly, you you sort of make a joke in the book that your goal is to put mental health professionals like myself out of business, (laughs) which I love. I actually think it's great because I think there's some truth to it, actually, because I work with adults in my practice and I spend so much of my time working with people on these same skills, you know, identifying, being aware of their emotions, learning more helpful ways to express their emotions and that kind of thing. Um, And actually, it's a perk of being a psychologist, I think, in the clinical role is that you kind of learn to do this and you're always paying attention to it. Um, So when you think about your mission at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and sort of the ramifications later in life, do you see that? I mean, are you being serious about that? I am. Um, I mean, in regard to your point about like putting all the mental health professionals out of business. No, I mean, obviously things go wrong and we have challenges in life. There's no denying that. 
but you know my my irritation is that we as a society are very intervention focused and not prevention focused right we wait for the nervous breakdown and then we say oh i gotta get my kid help we don't think oh if i taught my child to be self-aware if i taught my child language if i if i taught my child effective strategies to manage you know their emotions then um it might not lead to that breakdown um and that's what drives me out of my mind to be honest with you is that we um we don't think like preventionists yes that's exactly right teaching people these skills early prevents a lot of problems later yeah and you can't just rely on you don't just develop these skills they it's like any form of education it has to be formalized you know you have to learn the words you're not born with an air of your brain that has like emotion language built into it right you got to learn the words and you got to learn to differentiate different emotions from you know anger from disappointment and frustration from overwhelm and elation from excitement and calm from contentment and you got to learn how to communicate these feelings and practice that and certainly we all know i mean my goodness you know people always think that i'm the like the because i'm you know a scientist in this space and i you know write books and stuff like that that i'm like the leading expert in the application of these skills <laughs> and i always tell people like you have no idea like i am a work in progress and uh it has been hard to regulate really hard um and but i have a you know a growth mindset around my failures around emotion regulation you know i'm like a bad day it's okay everybody has them i can apologize i can even do a little bit of self-forgiveness and i could try my best tomorrow you know to manage more effectively and that whole process is a very reflective process you know it's not it shouldn't be done in isolation it should be done you know with families and with partners and in schools and in workplaces but you know one of the things that you asked a while ago that i don't think i answered was like why don't we really do this and it's because historically we have seen this aspect of human development as being weak you know emotions you know typically we see and when we say the word emotions we think emotional which means hysterical which means not you know sane not you know together and um so we're not going to go there because that's like all that messy stuff for people who have mental illness and you know blah 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 when it's just the opposite when we learn how to use our emotions wisely all great things happen we make better decisions we are better learners we have better quality relationships our physical and our mental health is better and we can be more creative yeah i i think that work in progress stance is so important because it doesn't get it, it doesn't give the impression that oh you have it figured out and you know everyone else can figure out and they're done forever it really truly is a work in progress for all of us everyone well, think about it you know like i was doing pretty well with my anxiety you know i i'm i'm i'm, I'm prone to feeling more startled and anxious in life thank you mommy thank you daddy thank you my upbringing <laughs> um <laughs> but um you know lockdown quarantine social distance psychological you know my goodness you know i've never worked from home i hate working from home and it's been nine months that i'm sitting on my 
focus, you know, here in my office. And I'm like, you know, and then my partner leaves to go make a film for four months. And I'm like alone with our two puppies that we had adopted for this, you know, to keep us company during the pandemic. And I'm like, wait a minute here. When did I agree to be a single parent of two puppies by myself in this house trying to work and run a center? Like that is not easy. Um, And, you know, I'm fortunate. Imagine what it's like for people who are less fortunate, you know, than we are, who have less resources, who have, you know, financial problems, who have, you know, problems with food scarcity. You can imagine what their bodies and brains are going through on a daily basis. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of physics, I had a a good friend of mine in grad school who was in physics. And we had this argument all the time because he had this belief that is very pervasive in our our culture that rational thought and emotions are sort of not just separate, but that emotions can sort of get in the way of rational thinking. I, he probably didn't say that quite. Ex- no, but that's that a, that is a predominant thought. That's a predominant thought. He'd probably say, well, you're not making it sound worse than it was, but I would always say no, that this is, you know, that they kind of work together. Can you speak to that? Why actually emotional intelligence actually helps with thinking? Well, that's, I think, firstly, we really, all of that kind of thinking is very antiquated. You know, that there's like the thinking part of the brain and the feeling part of the brain. We like to like put things in their place and just not the way we operate. Our thoughts and feelings are intertwined constantly. Um, And so that alone should just let people realize that like everything has feeling and everything has thought just the way we are. Um, I think where emotional intelligence comes in handy is that it's all about the wise use of feeling. You know, I don't know about you, but like the emotions are my feelings have gotten the best of me a million times over the last nine months. You know, can you say that as a clinician that you've failed at regulating your feelings? Is that appropriate? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it happens, right? (laughs) Exactly. It's like, yes, exactly. Like, you know, um, and you know, it's like you're, caught off guard you're tired you're hungry you're overwhelmed you're scared and like someone triggers you and you're like you know you go nuts um oh no me never huh no no, i'm just kidding (laughs) of course yes it happens to all of us there are days like i'm like i know i'm losing it i'm like mark come on you know this stuff you know this stuff mark come on you know it (laughs) and then i'm like and go and i'm like i can't believe i just did that i can't believe i just said that Um, especially like when my partner was traveling and we'd have conversations like around 11 o'clock at night. Oh, that was not a good time. And it was about like finances or something. Forget about it. It's like. Recipe for disaster. Recipe for disaster. So point I'm trying to make here is that emotional intelligence is about learning how to use our emotions wisely. And that means that emotions serve a function their information, their data, right? Anger is telling us there is an injustice going on around us. Fear is that there's impending danger. Envy is I'm desiring something that someone else has that I don't think I can have maybe. And so you can allow envy to take over your life like it has for many college students. You know, I did some studies with college students here at Yale and elsewhere. And, you know, envy is the predominant emotion. You know, they're just constantly thinking everyone else is better. Everyone else is going to have more opportunity. Everyone else 
can study less and get better grades and the list goes on. And you can imagine how that can drive you out of your mind after a while because you're just ruminating and thinking constantly about why everyone's better and you lose yourself in that process. And so that's when emotions go down the alley of like not productive, unhelpful. Emotional intelligence says, all right, let me, firstly, how am I really feeling? Because most students say they're stressed and then they go to the counseling center and then they tell them to take a yoga class or a mindfulness class, which drives me out of my mind because that's helpful. I I do both of those things, but it's not the answer to all of life's problems. You know, if you're in an abusive relationship, like yoga is not going to get you out of it. (laughs) You know, so the, um, and so like this process of introspection around feeling, the process of learning helpful ways of reappraising or engaging in more positive self-talk and evaluating that, is this helping me to get, you know, be more uh, productive in life and have greater well-being? That's what the work is all about. Yeah. I actually, that stress piece that you're talking about, that just really stuck with me when I was reading the book because stress, we use that word all the time. I use it myself all the time. You use as as an example of labeling emotions that it's Mm -hmm. actually to say that you're feeling stressed is pretty imprecise. And I never really thought about the envy piece of it. Usually there's some comparison. What, what would, what would you know, what would you say about stress to help people if they if they'd say I'm stressed right now can you can you help break it down for listeners Yeah well I mean I think stress is a real thing it's typically when you have too many demands on your time and life and you don't have the resources to deal with it all so you're just you're you're stressed you're depleted but that's one form of you know what we call the anxiety and you know fear family you know, the example I write about in my book was one that really has still sticks with me was when I was going up for tenure as a professor back, I don't know how many years ago, um, I went, I was stressed. That's what I call it. I called it. And I, I had heartburn and I went to the doctor and I'm like, you know, my father had his first heart attack at 48. I'm like, this is it. I'm having a heart attack. I was so neurotic about my health. And, um, just a little like, catastrophizing in there. A little huh? bit. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Even the best of us have it. <laughs> and so um, I go to the doctor and he's like, here's your Prilosec, you know, and here's your Ativan. I'm like, really? That's it? You want me to take anti-anxiety pills and like stuff for my heartburn? Um, and he's like, yeah, you're going to be fine. This is what happens at places like this. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, that is not cool. And, you know, after that moment, I really like took a pause And I finally did what I ask everyone else to do. I asked myself how I was feeling. Like, really? Was I stressed? The truth is I wasn't really stressed. You know, I had a lot of demands, but I was pretty resilient. And, you know, I got things done. And I, you know, I wasn't falling apart. Um, And then I said, well, am I afraid? Well, no, there's no danger in my life right now. Um, How about... um, anxious. Well, there's a little bit of uncertainty about whether or not I'm going to get tenure, but truth is I don't, I think it's pretty good. I mean, I've got the grants, I wrote the papers and then I realized the feeling was overwhelmed. Like the real experience, hence I told you I was overwhelmed uh, when we started this podcast. (laughs) Go figure. 
um, is basically I had no freedom. So my days were packed from like, get up in the morning and do your workout from 6.45 to 7.30 and then breakfast from 7.30 and then get in the car and shower and then get to work by 8.30 and then work till 5.30 then go to yoga. Then come home and have dinner and then work more. And then at 11 o'clock at night, you know, close your computer and go to bed and not, you know, be a terrible spouse. And, you know, um, and then all of a sudden I said, that's, that's what it is. I have no freedom. And then once I realized that everything changed for me, like the heartburn went away. I started like by eight o'clock, I'm like, I'm done for the day. I'm going to watch the voice tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was like little things because all the scheduling of yoga and mindfulness and whatever it was, it didn't matter because I was so just no space. And I think that's really helpful for people to be precise in labeling their experiences because then you realize that the yoga class may not be the answer. Now, if you're generally just like kind of stressed out and you just need like your brain, some, you know, some, you got stuff going on at work and it's pretty heavy, you know, then the yoga class might be perfect for you, you know, to just help you kind of bring the stress levels down. But if it's about a life issue, then you might need cognitive problem solving. You know, you can't, you can't breathe away your relationship dynamics, right? You know, this as a therapist, right? As a psychologist, you got to, you got to learn how to have a difficult conversation. <laughs> right. And then manage the fear or the anxiety that you might have in that conversation because of the power dynamics or whatever heck's going on for you. Like that's a real skill that I don't believe we have afforded people. I think you're right that it's easy sometimes to get on the wrong track. That's maybe what you're talking about. It's like you're going to yoga for a relationship problem. It's quite the quick fix thing. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. the quick fix. And there, this is like, this is complicated, you know, like the way I like to think about it is for me, um, I had, as you know, from reading my book, I was sexually abused as a child. So I have leftovers from that, you know? Um, and even though I was in therapy as a kid and I've spent much of my life, you know, healing, I still get activated, you know, by things that are related to those experiences when I was five and 10 years old. I'm lucky that I have a, lots of strategies and awareness, but I still get affected by it. The experience is still baked into my body. Um, and I was bullied horrifically as a kid in school, like terrible bullying, extortion, and just really mean and cruel experiences. And so, and I was, I had weight problems. I had an eating disorder and I was, I pretty much had, you know, negative self views. I mean, I still have them and I'm 51. And so I've had, I've had a lot of practice being self-critical. I haven't had a lot of practice being self-compassionate mm. because it was never, it wasn't part of my development. There were no opportunities, you know, for people to help me engage in that kind of thinking about who I was and what I was experiencing. So think about the way our brain develops Right. I've got like metastasized meanness and self-cruelty and criticism. And I've got like a few neurons that fire for self-compassion. 
And so I think this is why this work is so important because right, as they say, you know, neurons that fire together, you know, work together, wire together, fire together. And so, um, we got to wire more of the self-compassion and, you know, the helpful strategies. Yeah. To keep, keep, keep those neurons moving. It takes practice. And I'm so appreciative that you shared your personal story, especially the traumatic aspects of it in your book, because I think it really brings it to life. Just the process that you went through personally, which really, I mean, the science backs up your work 100%, but your personal story really is very powerful. I appreciate that. You know, it took me, it was, you know, one of the reasons why I did it and it took me till I was like 49 writing my book to say, you know what, I got to be honest about why I do the work I do. I've always been asked, well, I hated school, you know, I was bullied. But if I really, you know, were to share with you, like, why do I do this work? It's because I feel like my emotional life was stolen from me as a child. You know, when you're being abused by someone who threatens you and you have to keep the disgust, the fear, whatever those feelings are, they're not good ones, they're not pleasant ones, trapped in your body as a young child. I mean, think about where they have, they go places that are just not pleasant. And so that permission to feel, which is the title of my book, really comes from this idea that the adults who are raising and teaching kids need to provide the context for kids to have the permission to experience and express all their emotions. And, you know, I had two lovely parents and I know they love me, but my, my parents didn't have an emotion education. My mother grew up with like a really like crazy father and neurotic mother And, you know, she was anxious all the time, having breakdowns as I was growing up and like watching my mother have nervous breakdowns didn't say, that's an opportunity to talk about my trauma. It's like, not going to go there because if I even like bring up something like she'll have a breakdown, it'll be worse. And then my father was a tough guy who was always like, son, you got to toughen up. You know, even in high school, my father said something. I don't know if I've ever shared this in public. He said something like, you know, son, I used to beat kids up like you. I'm like, dad. You know, come on. Like, I don't know. That's We don't call that like father-son bonding 101. <laughs> and my father and I had a good relationship, but he had no clue, you know, about, you know, nurturing my emotions. And so his mindset was survival means toughening up. I don't know. I'm 51. I've got a fifth degree black belt now. I'm still not a tough guy. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's all these mindsets that are often created for us by other people that we then start believing are the ways that we have to be. Well, it goes back to the start of our conversation. It's so pervasive and, you know, it kind of keeps going down generations if people don't learn it somewhere along the way because Completely. then you can't teach it if you don't know it and so on. The way that you approach teaching this skill set I love. And the acronym you use is RULER, R-U-L-E-R. And, you know, people will benefit very much from buying your book, reading it like in detail, each of these skill sets. But could you give just kind of like a nutshell overview of what the, sure. the RULER skills are? Yeah, of course. 
I think, you know, I want to put them in the context of like how they show up. And so, you know, I talk about this idea that first you got to give yourself the permission to feel, right? You got to, there's no good or bad emotion. And, you know, even myself, when I speak about this stuff, I slip into the good, bad thing. And I really have to monitor myself because like in my soul, you know, my, my goal is to ensure that no one judges their feelings, right? There's no anxiety is not good or bad. It's an experience. If we experience that emotion for too long and it's too intense, it's harmful to our health and wellness, but it's not a bad emotion. Same thing with excitement, you know, you know, a little bit of excitement. Great. You know, if you're excited all the time, you're like annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's, you know, it's like too much of a good thing. Exactly. There you go. And then, so then you become this emotion scientist or emotion judge based on your upbringing. You know, are you curious or critical? Are you interested in getting specific or you just clump everything? And then it's like, okay, so what are the skills? And so there's R-U-L-E-R, recognizing, understanding, labeling, expressing, regulating. To give credit where credit is due, you know, these are the skills of emotional intelligence that I've learned through my mentors, Peter Salovey and Jack Mayer who were the founders of the theory of emotional intelligence. And over the last 20 years of my working with them and the model, I've kind of separated the skills a little bit more into this ruler model. And so R is for recognizing. So for example, even though we're you know looking at each other on Zoom in this podcast, I'm still trying to pick up on you know your facial expression, your body language, I'm listening to your vocal tones. Um, I'm also feeling, you know, things throughout this, you know, talking about my childhood and thinking about, you know, the future around me. Um, and so that's the first step. And there's no, there's not necessary language there. It could be this kind of gut visceral thing where it's like, like, do I feel like being with you or not with you? Do I feel comfortable and safe? Do I feel uncomfortable? Do I want to approach this conversation? Do I feel like... I'm in danger potentially, so I want to avoid it. That's the R of ruler. The U of ruler is, all right, Mark, well, what's what's the story going on right now? You know, why are you feeling the way you're feeling? Um, oh, well, I have the opportunity to share more of the work with more people, and Debbie seems like a nice person to do that with. And, and so, oh, okay, well, what's the feeling associated with that experience? Well, I feel relaxed. I feel content. I feel eager. Um, I'm excited. Okay, that's the labeling piece. So RUL in our model is really about helping people make meaning out of their own and other people's emotions. It's very, um, it's bodily, it's cognitive. We're not doing anything yet, though, with the feelings. We're just aware of what we're feeling. The E and the R, now it's time to do something. It's the strategic aspects of emotional intelligence. So do I tell you how I'm really feeling or do I mask it? Because if I shared how I was really feeling, it might overwhelm you or you might not know how to deal with it, right? Like I I didn't express my feelings when I was a kid because either I would get sent to my room or I would, my mother would yell and scream or have a breakdown. So I'm like, when it Suppress, repress, eat, you know, you know, all those strategies. 
emotional or experiential yeah. avoidance. We sometimes call it emotional avoidance. Yeah, exactly. And then the question is, okay, so what do I do with these feelings? Um, what's my strategy? And these are not like so linear. I explain them in that linear way just because it's the only way to write a book. But like they're dynamic. Like sometimes you're like in the midst of regulating, you're calming yourself down. Like, oh, crap, I'm really anxious. And sometimes you perceive something like, oh, that person really doesn't like me. Oh, I must, you know, I'm afraid. But in general, the R, the U, and the L work together. And then the E and the R work together. Um, and my argument is that we don't teach any of this stuff. Right. I never had a, I mean, just like no one, no one, you know, when I was coming down the stairs, having a panic attack because I was going to get beaten up on the school bus, nobody noticed my facial expression and said, you know, Mark, what's going on? I'm noticing a shift today. No one asked me the question, you know, what might be you feeling? What might, what might you feel? No one said to me, you know, let's think about a strategy that can help you deal with that anxiety or let's prevent that bullying from happening in the first place. It was like, good luck and goodbye. <laughs> and it's unfortunate, you know, that, you know, I've learned to, I've, I've, I've dealt with my resentment about this in my own life um, because I recognize, you know, that my parents... They didn't know what they didn't know. And um, and I'm also an eternal optimist about my own skill development, you know, that nothing is permanent. And so that mindset is very helpful. I think this is, this is what people come to therapy often, not always, obviously. There's many other reasons, but is that they come in maybe not even realizing it, but needing help with that, like understanding their emotions, having awareness of them and knowing what to do with them. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, if you can learn this earlier, you'll save yourself a lot of time and money in therapy sessions later. Right. And you know what, like life happens too, you know, like, you don't, you can't predict your future. So, you know, if you unexpectedly lose someone, you know, like many people have right now from COVID, you know, then of course you're going to need support and, yeah. Again, there's no judgment about that either. No, no. And I think it's a great way to get support and to get help with these skills, actually. I, yeah, completely. I'm ready. Um, I'm actually ready to go back into therapy. So if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk. No. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> so one of the things that um, you you have so many really great suggestions for how to do these skills. I mean, and I learned so much just reading some of your thoughts about some of these things and really breaking down the emotions. One I especially love is the meta moment. And sure. it's very in line with my therapy approach, which is based on a more acceptance-based form of, of cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think as I read it, I'm like, that's exactly what I'm trying to do with my clients a lot of mm -hmm. times, but I never you do it so succinctly and just spot on. So can you kind of walk us through just sure. as one example of one of the, the skills that you offer, how do you do a meta moment? Yeah. So the meta moment is a tool that I developed with my colleague who is a therapist herself. Her name is Robin Stern and it's a four step process. And essentially I think the first step in the meta moment, now think about this emotion regulation. There's like everyday emotion regulation. You know, I'm tired when I get up in the morning or, you know, 
I'm procrastinating and I've got to like, Mark, just do it. That's not a meta moment. That's just everyday kind of life emotion management. Um, oftentimes we need meta moments, you know, when we're caught off guard. So for example, my mother-in-law was living with us during the pandemic. And one day, you know, we were get, it was getting really old because like she'd been with us for a month or two at a time, but not seven months. You know, she wanted to be home and she's from Panama. So it was like a whole thing. She missed her stuff in Panama. I missed my freedom. Uh, And like having dinner every night with the same person, you know, and that, you know, she liked, she was cooking and it was like getting old, the the same foods. Um, And she didn't like feedback. (laughs) And so one night I just, because I was really irritable. And anyway, we got into an argument. And then she looked at me and she's like, in Spanish, you know, are you really the director of the Center for Emotional Intelligence? And I was thinking to myself, like in that moment, like, not tonight. <laughs> and that's when I needed the meta moment. And that's in, in that moment when you're tired, you're irritable, and you're just about to like wring someone's neck. You say, all right, let me take that breath. Like your automatic go-to has to be not trigger or activation reaction, right? Activation, breathe, activation, pause, activation, pinch pinch yourself to not say what you want to say. And because it's in that space, right, that we build, you know, the capacity to regulate. But when, because we, what we do is when we go with automatic habitual responses, we just go for that jugular oftentimes. And so the meta moment is first, over time, be aware of your triggers, which, by the way, can be the littlest things. Because I grew up kind of, you know, my father, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. My father was an air conditioning repairman. My mother had different jobs. And everything was about, you know, how much did this cost? And, you know, everything was about money. So I, I still have my money issues that I'm working through. And, and my partner, you know, doesn't think the way I think about money. And so it's interesting, you know, like I said, how much was, it? I don't know. I'm like, you don't know. I don't understand. I, w- I know what I paid for a cup of coffee 15 years ago. <laughs> and so like, you know, the, like the littlest things can trigger you from like not knowing how much something cost to mother-in-law saying like, who the heck do you think you are? And so you're like, all right, Mark, come on, take that breath. Don't say it. Don't say it. But the cool thing about the meta moment is the third step which takes training and practice, which is activating your best self. And so, yeah, Mark, you are the director of the Center for Emotional Intelligence. Oh, yeah, well, what are the characteristics of someone in that role? Hmm. Um, that's interesting. Or, you know, I used to joke about this because a student at Yale wrote about my class when I first started teaching emotional intelligence, and he called it, he called me the feelings master. And, of course, it was, like, kind of funny and, you know, cheeky. But then one day I was like, well, you know what? I am the freaking feelings master. (laughs) And so how does the feelings master respond to the mother-in-law? How does the feelings master respond to the stupid thing about this or the entitled student who that's one of my triggers is entitlement. And so, all right, Mark is compact. Mark, the feelings master is a wise, you know, it's like Yoda with feelings, you know? And so then the question is, can you respond to your feeling through the lens of the Yoda? And this is why it's work. It's like a muscle. But people love it. It's so helpful because 
you know, when you when you talk to someone and strategize through the Yoda lens, right, it's very different than Mark the triggered lens. Yes. Again, um, it takes practice. It's why prevention, even with the meta moment, is helpful. What I mean by that is that, so my mother-in-law drives me out of my mind once in a while. When I was able to leave the house, but to go for a walk, let's say, I'd come back and I'd like anticipate the whole like dinner thing. I would, before I open the door to my home, I would just take a breath and I'm like, all right, Mark, what is the ideal son-in-law do right now? How does he respond in the moment? Oh, like the ideal son-in-law says, can I help you with dinner? Or how about I cook dinner tonight so I can eat what I want to eat? And so like you can be very prevention focused even with this tool. So if you know you're going to be activated, why not do some planning in advance to not um, to not allow or to prevent that from activating you? Yeah, it's much harder to do that when you're in the heat of the moment. Sometimes practicing in advance really puts you in that space where you can. Yeah. By the way, Debbie, I think it's such an important thing for listeners, which is that this requires practice in the feeling you know and so much of what we learn in school is done in like this cold cognitive way like worksheets on emotion regulation that's not the way we're going to learn this skill we've got to be in it yeah in real life um you know the best self piece that reminds me in acceptance and commitment therapy we call it checking in with your values and using your values having a sense of you at your best and you know, when you're in, when you are consistent with your values, what are you doing? And then can you live those values, even in the heat of the moment when it's really hard, because maybe you're feeling emotional distress? Yeah, that's the hard. I mean, it's why it's practice. It's a muscle. Yeah. Yeah. But then you also have to give yourself the permission to fail. And the permission to apologize, you know, in the permission to forgive and start over. Mm-hmm. Because you're going to make mistakes. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you. Right? Yes. <laughs> Even the center of the, or the director of the Yale Center yeah. of Emotional Intelligence will. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like more than you'd want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so final question here, you know, again, I think this is an area that's on so many people's minds right now, the pandemic stress, and particularly with kids, because you do work a lot with education and with teaching this to young people. And I think what, you know, they're in their remote learning, they're, they're noticing their parents' stress, they're not having their same level of fun times that they would normally, you would want a child to have. Um, and I know people are worried, is this going to impact kids emotionally in the long term? And I hear people really concerned about that. What's this going to do? So what words of wisdom can you share with anyone, parents, teachers, caregivers, um, anyone who wants to do what they can to help kids make it through this? I think the first is you want to kind of move away from even the way you were talking about the challenges that people are facing. Like everybody's worrying that this is going to like thwart healthy development because that alone like is not a great place to be psychologically, you know, and, you know, we, we create the realities that we talk about. So I would say, like, move away from that thinking. Just say it's different. And I've really, for myself, for example, I've really come, you know, really worked on that. Like, this is a different reality that I'm used to. It doesn't make it bad. 
It's just different. And I have to learn how to live in this reality. And so I think for parents, it's an exercise in creativity um, in terms of, you know, firstly, you don't have to be the knower as the parent. I think every, every parent comes to, like when I do these workshops for families and parents, they're always, they come in, they think, Mark's going to teach me strategies to raise an emotionally intelligent child. And they leave saying, oh, shit, I've got a lot of work to do on myself. <laughs> and so... Right. The yeah. focus shifts. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It was like when I taught martial arts, I had martial arts background and I taught for many years. Parents would come and teach my kid discipline. I would be like, how about you teach them discipline and I teach them the martial arts? <laughs> you know, it's like, that's not my job. I got them an hour a week. But more seriously, I think A, principle one, permission to feel. Everyone gets, there's no judgment. All feelings are fine. B, be the emotion, scientist, not the emotion, judge. Be a curious explorer, compassionate, not critical. Um, try to get to the specific feelings. And do what we call co-regulation, right? So remember, as the adults who are raising kids, that you're co-responsible for their healthy emotional development. So practice the breathing exercises. You know, do yoga with your kids, um, when they're, you know, show them that you're engaging in positive self-talk when you're stressed out or overwhelmed and you know, you're teaching them by example. Um, I think that's the core, you know, of the work. And then, you know, there are other things like no matter what your circumstances, you can always have a little bit of humor. You can always have fun, play a game. It doesn't cost money to play a game. And so I just feel as if, people can get lost, you know, in their anxiety and stress because that's what it does to you. And so finding ways to deactivate and finding ways to challenge your catastrophic thinking, like, you know, like, you know, right when we were like in April, like when really it was like, everybody was like, you can't go out, you can't go to the grocery store, there's no toilet paper, the stock market's crashing. I remember sitting exactly where I'm sitting like, you know, I can't go out. I'm going to, I'm not going to have any money. I'm never going to retire, you know, and I'm never going to shake you at the desk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was yeah. like, um, yeah. you know, and then I'm like, all right, Mark, wait a minute. Like how much control do you, you know, how much control do you have over like the lack of toilet paper in the store? <laughs> None. All right. Um, all right. How much control do you have over the stock market? None. Right. Everybody's in the same boat. Are you alone in this boat? No, everybody's in the same boat. Oh, that's interesting. So I'm not alone in this. I'm not the only one feeling like this is no, everybody's feeling that way almost. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it's, 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 we can get lost, you know, in the strong emotions. And so as parents, I think deactivate, co-regulate, be a compassionate scientist and explorer. Um, and that will be a major help. That's very wise. Thank you for that. Because yes, <laughs> I think that that's helpful. It's just very grounding to think, okay, you know, this is a hard thing, but people do hard things and, you know, we'll, we'll adjust be... as it. it's not going to be easy. That's okay. Well, I think the critical thing for parents is that they think they have to be perfect. You know, or they have to, they can't tell their kid they're worried. 
But here's the thing that's interesting. Imagine this. Imagine, you know, the parent who is overwhelmed and nervous about the stock market, about their work, and they come and they have dinner and they say, you know, honey, you're, you're probably noticing that daddy's a little off today. Yeah, dad, I did notice that. Yeah, well, I'm a little worried, you know, about everything that's happening, you know, with the coronavirus, and I want to make sure that we're safe. And so let's work together on a plan to make sure that our family's safe. What, do you, what are your ideas about making a plan for how we can be safe as a family? Because our safety is our priority, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to miss working with my friends at work and my colleagues. I bet you're going to probably miss some of your friends at school. So what can we do together to help us, you know, not allow that to be so bad for us? What are your thoughts about how we can, you know, do you see what I'm saying? Like just real authentic conversation, mm-hmm. Auth- but like you're not denying yourself, your feelings. You're not denying your kids seeing you as a real human being. And you're literally teaching and problem solving and developing the skills together. Yes. You're role modeling permission to feel, which is exactly. Huge. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really a fun conversation and it's nice to get to know you. Me thank too. you again for sharing to your personal experience with it. Sure. Cause that does just like in the book, it brings it to life. Um, it's been a real pleasure and we will link to all of your, you know, your webpage, your book, you have great. some really great resources so that people can find you easily. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you.